0: Education reformer Charles Sykes, in his book, Dumbing Down Our Kids, Why American Children Feel Good About Themselves But Can't Read, Write, and Add, gave a list of things high schoolers did not and will not learn in school. He talks about how feel-good, politically correct teaching has created a generation of kids with no concept of reality, and how this concept sets them up for failure in the real world. Here are 11 of these rules. Rule one, life is not fair, get used to it. Rule two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. The world will expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Rule three, you won't make $60,000 a year right out of high school. You won't be a vice president with your own car until you earn both. Rule four, if you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. Rule five, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a different word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. Rule six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about your mistakes. Learn from them. Rule seven, before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, and listening to you talk about how cool you thought you were. So before you save the rainforest and the earth, try cleaning up your own room first. Rule eight, your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools, they've abolished failing grades, and they'll give you as many times as you want to get the right answer. That doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Rule nine, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summers off, and very few employers are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that on your own time. Rule ten, television is not real life. In real life, people actually have to leave the coffee shop and go to work. Rule eleven, be nice to nerds, chances are you'll end up working for one. In a generation that values good feelings and political correctness, it has set us up for failure in our spiritual lives. We have softened our view towards the wickedness of sin. We have forgotten what it means to be children of God, and we have ignored what it means to live righteously. And this disconnect from the realities of godly, biblical, spiritual living has made us very unsure about our faith, and with that, how we approach the uncertainties in life. As we continue our sermon series entitled "Unshakable," studying the book of First John together, we want to learn how we can build up a confident faith that will allow us to be unshakable in times of uncertainty, especially when deceivers and false teachers try to redefine what righteous living entails and our motivation to live it out in our lives. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First John as we take a look at chapter 2, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 9. And here in chapter 2, verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 9, we want to see the principles for how we can find encouragement to live righteous lives. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 9. I read now from 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. John begins this section by reminding the Christian readers that when we see Christ, and He can come at any time, whether it be at the rapture of the church or when our time on earth is over and He calls us home, that we will look forward with anticipation to that day, excited to tell Jesus all we've done for Him with our lives. And John notes that those who have lived righteously or rightly can have confidence and have nothing to be ashamed of when the time comes for everything in our lives, in thought, in word, and in deed, are laid before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, which 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 talks about, and where we Christians will be judged for our eternal heavenly rewards. Let's say, for example, if at the end of the year everyone will have what they've written on social media and on messaging apps like Discord, Viber, or FB or IG Messenger be made public for anyone to read. What would be your reaction? So if as a teenager, college student, young adult or adult, what would be your reaction if this happened, especially the things you've written in those private chat rooms? What if those things were exposed? Would there be anything in there that you would be ashamed of because people know that you're a Christian and that you go to church. Would people reading it not expect that a Christian churchgoer would write such a thing? Would you fight for those things not to be exposed because somehow you will be embarrassed? Or would you have the confidence to say, you know, everything can be made public because there is nothing to hide? You see, John was saying that we should live our lives righteously as there should be nothing to hide from the Lord or from the world, so that when our lives will be called to account, we can confidently say to the Lord, examine away. We can say to the world, examine away. I have nothing to hide. I have tried to live righteously in all aspects of my life, and I'm not ashamed of the way I've lived my life. This reality of a future judgment for Christians, where everything will be exposed for our rewards, should motivate us to live in intimate fellowship with God, and to abide in Him in this present life because we want to report that we have been faithful to Him and tell Him that we have done wonderful things in His name. Can you imagine the look of sadness and disappointment if, let's say, on your 50th anniversary, as everyone is celebrating your marriage, that it is revealed that you have had three affairs and you were constantly unfaithful to your spouse, that certainly would be embarrassing Or, when perhaps you're about to receive your graduation honors, that it was revealed that you plagiarized your thesis or that you cheated on multiple exams. Certainly, many would be disappointed and you would be embarrassed. As verse 29 emphasizes, righteous living is what should mark the life of a Christian. Righteous living should be the norm for a follower of Christ, not the exception. But yet, sadly, when Christians do what is right and live out Christian principles in this world, they are often the exceptions rather than what is normal from the perspective of both the Christian world and the secular world. But John advocates that when a Christian lives out doing what is right, then they testify to all who are observing that they are a child of God. You see, it's not in people seeing you go to church or in you claiming to be a Christian that the world affirms that you are a child of God it is when they see that you are living righteously. Again, righteous living should not be the exception for a child of God. It should be what is normal. And here is principle number one. Desiring to stand before the Lord confidently, presenting our lives without shame, should encourage us to live righteous lives. Desiring to stand before the Lord confidently presenting our lives without shame, should encourage us to live righteous lives. Now look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. John now directs us as Christian readers to think about the greatness of God's love bestowed on us That we would have the great privilege of not only being called children of God, but are in fact children of God. My friends, when was the last time you thought about the privilege of our standing as children of God? We are children of God not by our own good works, not because we deserve it, but because of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and Galatians chapter 4 verse 5 speaks of our adoption by God through Christ to be His children. And we remember in adoption, the right of choosing is on the parent, not on the child. The parent has all the power in the sense that they have to want to adopt. They have to have the means to adopt. They have to have the heart and the capacity to adopt the child is just a passive participant to be chosen to be adopted. But when that adoption is finalized, the child receives all the rights of being a child of the parent, and the adoption cannot be reversed even if the child is disobedient or may not live up to their parents' wishes. So think about your own lives. With your sinful ways, do you think that anyone would want to adopt you? Do you think that Almighty God would want to adopt us? And the answer is absolutely yes, because of God's great love, the Bible says, God's great love for us, that we should be called His children. You see, a great price was paid, the price of the death of His own Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have the privilege of being adopted by God and being called children of God. Just think about this wonderful truth and spend a few moments meditating on it. So, the next time you think that you are, quote-unquote, only a Christian, that you and I have missed out on the great truth of our standing as children of God when we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. My friends, you and I are the children of the Most High God. So, if you have any self-esteem or self-worth issues, or you somehow feel sad that you don't come from royalty or come from a prominent family because your own family is dysfunctional, or you're not as famous like all the influencers or all the TikTokers out there on social media, remember that you are the child of the Most High King. If I were to ask you a question, would you rather be the child of Queen Elizabeth II and part of British royalty or a child of the Almighty King? Which would you choose? I think some of us may choose to be part of the British royalty because it's more prestigious and more famous in the world today. Some of you may say being a British monarch has its perks, and they're so famous, and everyone knows them. They're probably the most famous royal family in the world. And let's say that being a British royal entitles you to $100 million. But you know, if you go to a place like Tajikistan, perhaps, and tell them that you are a member of the British royal family, they may say, who cares? Because they don't know who Queen Elizabeth II is. But then other than hurting your ego does that endanger your perks and benefits as being a British monarch? No, it does not. Does it endanger your hundred million dollar benefit? Of course not. Similarly, if you tell the world that you are a child of the Most High King, and they say, who cares? since so they don't know God. People knowing or not knowing, people caring or not caring, doesn't in any way diminish your standing as a child of God. You are still a child of God, and with it, all of the perks and benefits and privileges that come with it, regardless if the world cares or not, regardless if the world knows or not. So, sometimes we choose what we want based on what other people think, but it really doesn't matter. And just thinking about this truth should make us want to reassess our perspective of where we place our self-worth and where we place the value of where we find our prestige. I hope you will always choose to hold highly the fact that you are a child of the Most High King. You know, when I was young, I was taught a wonderful hymn that isn't sung much these days anymore. But the words hold such meaning. It is the song, A Child of the King, by Harriet Buell. And it goes something like this. My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold... His coffers are full, he is richest untold. My father's own son, the savior of men, once wandered on earth as the poorest of them, but now he is reigning forever on high and will give me a home in heaven by and by. I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth, but I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion a robe and a crown. Though poor on this earth, oh, why should I care? Since glorious things for me God doth prepare. Though trials abound, yet still I may sing. All glory to God, I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of the King, a child of the King. With Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the King. Isn't that wonderful? I love that line. Though poor on this earth, Oh, why should I care, since glorious things for me God doth prepare? Why? Because you and I are children of the King. And one of the great privileges of being a child of God is found in verses 2 to 3. Look with me. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him, purifies Himself just as He is pure. Here, John reminds us Christians that many of the privileges of being a child of God are yet to come in the life after this. One of those privileges is having a resurrected body. The Bible tells us at the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this, that we will be changed we will no longer have this corruptible, sin filled, limited body, but we will be transformed to a body without sin. The Bible says, We shall be like him. The hymn referring to the resurrected Jesus Christ with an incorruptible, indestructible body. Can you imagine what a wonderful thing this will be? To have a great resurrected body that never tires, never ages, never has any diseases, and never dies. Recently, In my sphere of influence, there have been many diagnosed with illnesses such as cancer, dementia, a stroke, heart attack, COVID issues, aging, and it is a reminder to me of the frailty of the human body, the fact that the aging process marches on and there's nothing we can do to stop it. In fact, some of you know that I've switched exercise regimens from walking on the treadmill to cycling. And recently, I biked 100 kilometers with a group of 15 cyclists to the border of Pampanga on a a six-and-a-half-hour bike ride. My knees were hurting. My arm was hurting. My bottom was hurting. That night, my lower back muscle had some spasms, and my calf muscle were cramping. While these experiences are normal for a ride of that length, I realized at that moment I'm no longer in my 20s or my 30s. It really makes you wish for incorruptible, resurrected body, where even after a hundred kilometer bike ride, you won't feel any soreness. That's a wonderful, wonderful promise. And it isn't a dream or a wish. It is what the Bible says is promised for those who are children of God. That is what we can look forward to. And the realization of this and many other wonderful privileges of being a child of God should motivate us and remind us that we need to live a life of righteousness. Because when we see our Lord who gives us all of these benefits and we enter into our rewards, then we want to live our lives in such a way that we do not disappoint the one who has given us and will give us so much. Let's say, for example, that you live and study abroad. And the next time you will meet your parents over the holidays, they promise that they will buy you a brand new sports car. And of course, in addition to that, they are already paying for your schooling and housing expenses. There is an implied expectation that when you come back and you meet them and you tell them about your life, that you will tell them that the life you have lived is how they have raised you. And you will want to, of course, give them a great report because you don't want them to be disappointed. You want them to be very proud of you, especially knowing that they're paying for your schooling and housing expenses and they have a car waiting for you. They want to know that you have lived a good life and you also want to report about a life well lived. Similarly, it is the same motivation for when you remember the many benefits of being a child of God, which you are currently enjoying and will receive. You will want to live out a righteous, holy life Just as He is holy, the Bible tells us in verse 3. You see, my friends, principle number two is this. The privilege and benefits of being children of God should motivate us to live righteous lives. The privilege and benefits of being children of God should motivate us to live righteous lives. There's a story of a boy who was adopted by a Christian couple. When that boy became a teenager, he started to hang around the wrong crowd. He got involved with drugs and women. He broke his curfew and was just simply rebellious. And so the couple went and talked to their pastor. They asked the pastor if he would go and talk to their teenage son. And so the pastor went and talked to this young man. The pastor began their conversation by talking about how his parents had adopted him and showered him with love and affection. Then the pastor talked about the things that this young man was doing today. And then he continued to tell this young man that he was causing a lot of grief to his parents. Then the pastor asked the young man, aren't you thankful for what your parents did for you? The young man thought for a moment and then said, yes, I'm thankful for what my parents did for me. But what am I supposed to do? Be thankful for the rest of my life? And the answer is yes, absolutely, for the rest of your life into eternity. You know, sometimes we as Christians wonder, how long should I be thankful to God for for adopting me to be His child? The answer is for the rest of our lives into eternity. When we think about the privilege and benefits of being a child of God, it should motivate us to live righteous lives. Look with me now at verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is is lawlessness. Here in verse 4, John contrasts the purity and righteous living mentioned in verse 3 with sin and lawlessness. He's emphasizing that sin is akin to lawlessness, which has the idea of wickedness. So, instead of sin having the passive idea of simply breaking a rule or breaking the law, what you have here is the emphasis that it is a rejection of the rules, a rejection of the entire law, an active opposition to God. And John reminds us readers of this truth because there were some deceivers in his time that were propagating this idea that sin isn't so bad. And similar in our time today, the world pushes the view that sin isn't as bad as we think it is. And our view of the terrible, destructive nature of sin has somehow sadly been softened. This is a deception of Satan. The reality is this, as someone so rightly wrote, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Let me repeat that. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay the world today masks the destructive nature of sin. Remember what the Bible says about sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? The wages of sin is death. All sin is enough to condemn us to death. In fact, as someone wrote, sin is far more deadly than the most aggressive and fast-growing cancer. Sin kills and destroys everything it touches. From the fall of Adam In the Garden of Eden until now, sin takes no prisoners. This is the same purpose behind everything Satan does. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Because of his evil nature and his hatred for everything good, the devil brings destruction to everything within his reach. When we regard sin as God does, We find nothing amusing or humorous about it. We will not make it the subject of our jokes we tell or those we hear. We will not allow ourselves to be tempted to get a little closer to the line to see if we are still safe. God hates sin with a holy and righteous fury. And so should we. When we find ourselves amused by sin, it is time for us to focus on the cross. Seeing the price paid for our sin reminds us that it is no laughing matter. Seeing the price paid for our sin reminds us that it is no laughing matter. Sin is so terrible that in verses 5 to 6, John will further explain why it is incompatible with Jesus Christ and with people who say they are in a personal relationship with Jesus as His children. Reading verse 5 and 6, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Jesus Christ, God Himself, came to earth and took on human form to die for us. Know what the Bible says? To take away our sins. In fact, since He Himself was sinless and came to take away our sins... It should be evidently clear that Jesus Christ, God Himself, does not tolerate sin, and He wants nothing to do with sin. Now, verse 6 may seem to imply that true Christians do not sin or can somehow reach sinless perfection or imply that somehow true Christians will not continue to sin or habitually sin. But other verses like 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10 speak of true genuine believers continuing to sin and that no Christians can live a perfect life until we reach glorification when our sin nature is gone. So what then does verse 6 mean? I believe that John is drawing a clear black and white distinct delineation mark between a life that is marked by abiding in Christ and a life of sin. He is stressing that being a child of God and living a life of sin is incompatible. Now, just because something is incompatible doesn't mean we won't try to make it compatible. If someone says to you, you can't fit a square peg into a round hole, what will we do? We'll try to trim the square to make it fit. But of course, that compromises the square piece. And once manipulated or forced to fit or forced to conform, The regional square form doesn't hold its integrity. Similarly, John is saying that you can't try to fit your Christian life into a life of sin, because if you conform to sin, then the integrity and the testimony of your Christian life is compromised. In fact, if one abides in Christ, then they not only have the power not to sin to the victory we have in Christ, but we should not want to sin because those who still enjoy sinning or accept sins isn't really intimately close with God. I hope you see my point. If you and I know truly the heart of God, then you and I will know that He hates sin. And if you are in an intimate relationship with Him, then you and I would want to avoid living in sin. Now, putting it all together, principle number three, knowing that being a child of God and living a sinful life are incompatible should persuade us to live righteous lives. Knowing that being a child of God and living a sinful life are incompatible should persuade us to live righteous lives. There's a story of a girl named Jenny who was with a group of her friends at a party. One of the girls suggested, let's go to a nightclub. But Jenny's reply was this, no, my parents wouldn't like that. But one of the girls retorted, are you afraid your father will punish and hurt you? No, Jenny replied, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me. I'm afraid that I might hurt him. May that be our attitude when we know that as a child of God, a sinful life is incompatible with righteous living. It should not be that we are afraid that God may discipline us, that we do not live a life of sin. It should be because we are afraid that we will grieve his heart. Look with me now at verses 7 to 9. "'Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God.'" In these verses, John seems to be counteracting what some of the deceivers and false teachers were teaching, and they were teaching the minimization of the gravity of sin, and perhaps justifying that sin was somehow okay. And this false teaching appeals to many of us today, because oftentimes we are like spoiled children of God. Have you ever noticed a parent spoiling his child by allowing that child to roam freely, by allowing that child to disobey? to be out late at night without accountability, to talk back at Him. At times, parents are fearful of losing their child's love if they restrict their activity or don't give in to their wants. Or like a spoiled child who rebels against his parents and or quits loving them because he doesn't get his way, we often quit in the Lord, throw in the towel because we don't like the difficult circumstances God has allowed to come into our lives or the commands He gives us in the Scriptures for how we should live in this present life. But here, John warns that this false teaching, that somehow God has made it easier for us by softening sin's impact and or justifying sin, was simply wrong teaching, false teaching. And he continues to show in these verses that righteous living and sinful living were incompatible. In verse 8, he notes the reality that all sin originates from Satan and in his own fall. and implies that because sin came upon mankind when Adam and Eve fell because of Satan's temptation, that therefore all sin is really satanic in nature. While in contrast, the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, was to come to earth to die on the cross in order to destroy the works of the devil… So, it would be the height of irony for children of God, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, to want to continue in sin. Verse 9 emphatically states that if one is in Christ, God's seed is in him, and he cannot sin. Not implying that Christians won't sin, but that Christians should not sin because he's been born of God. He is a new creation in Christ. John was putting this matter in very black and white terms, in contrast to the graying of the lines by the deceivers who were softening sin so that sinful living may somehow be more acceptable. John says, absolutely not. So, for example, a parent tells their teenager, you need eight hours of sleep every night for you to get enough rest for your growing body. Of course, the teen may try to argue and negotiate with his parents, but what about seven hours and 59 minutes of sleep? what about seven hours and 58 minutes of sleep? If a parent says that's okay, they may try to push it and say, what about seven hours of sleep? What about six and a half hours of sleep on the weekdays and I'll make it up on the weekends? Wise parents who don't want to play this sort of game will simply say, you need eight hours of sleep every night, non-negotiable, period. And this is what John is doing here when he gets into very clear terms that children of God do not, and should not sin. He doesn't want to play that game of trying to justify sin. He puts it into very stark terms. Sin is of the devil. Jesus came to eradicate sin on the cross, and therefore children of God who are heirs of Christ should not sin because of the cross. So, putting it all together, principle number four, recognizing that sin was destroyed by Jesus on the cross should embolden children of God to live righteous lives. Recognizing that sin was destroyed by Jesus on the cross should embolden children of God to live righteous lives. Norman Jean Douglas once said, Germans have a saying, Verde der, der du bist, meaning, become what you are. The meaning was difficult for me, Norman says, until a minister gave me the following analogy. When a reigning monarch has a child, There appears to be no difference between that royal child and any other child. Both are fussy, have dirty diapers, they're temper tantrums. But through years of patient training, exposure to kingly ways, role models, and mentors, eventually there is a person who exhibits kingly attributes. My friends, we are children of the king, but it takes time, effort, patience, and good role models before we become persons exhibiting kingly attributes. We have to become what we are, children of the King. And as children of the King, children of the Almighty King, we need to put in the time, effort, patience, and follow godly role models to live righteously. And our motivation to live righteously, number one, desiring to stand before the Lord confidently, presenting our lives without shame, should encourage us to live righteous lives. Number 2. The privilege and benefits of being children of God should motivate us to live righteous lives. Number 3. Knowing that being a child of God and living a sinful life are incompatible should persuade us to live righteous lives. And finally, recognizing that sin was destroyed by Jesus on the cross should embolden children of God to live righteous lives. My friends, let us live unshakable in these uncertain times, knowing that we are children of God, called to live righteously in this world, looking forward to our great heavenly inheritance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, often we have forgotten that we are children of the Almighty King, and You paid the great price for us to be Your child. You adopted us when we didn't deserve it. You gave us all of the benefits of being your child. And yet we still live sinful lives thinking that somehow we can make that square piece fit into that round hole. Help us to understand that righteous living is incompatible with sinful living. Help us to live righteously so that when we see you face to face, we will be proud, we will be confident, we will not be ashamed because there's nothing to hide, and we will share how we've lived our life for you in this present life and enter into our glorious eternal inheritance. May you be proud of the way we have lived our life because of what you did for us. Father, we love you and we do desire to live a life that is holy and pleasing. May the enabling power of the Holy Spirit help us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.